Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrin. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today on the pod, you get a billion dollars. You get a billion dollars. Everybody gets a billion dollars. It has been over two years and a federal election since the last budget was tabled in this country. Kind of wild. But the federal budget was tabled this week. And with over 700 pages, a spending at over $350 billion, $100 billion of which was new, it was a historic budget for both its content and the fact that it was delivered by Canada's first uh, female minister of finance. So a lot to dive into there. And we delayed the pod actually by a day. You're listening to this on Wednesday because we wanted to talk about it. However, uh, sadly, we are an Ontario podcast and we need to talk about the absolute travesty of leadership that we have seen in the province over the past week. Because I don't know about you guys, but it feels like something has shifted. Let's play a clip. My friends, we're losing the battle between the variants and vaccines. The pace of our vaccine supply has not kept up with the spread of the new COVID variants. We are on our heels. In the last few weeks, you've seen me up here every day. We've been ringing the alarm bells for weeks. Meanwhile, here's a clip from weeks ago. We can transition out of the province-wide shutdown. Today, I'm announcing the declaration of emergency will not be extended past February 9th. We will look to gradually and safely transition all regions to a revised and stronger COVID-19 response framework. For those business owners, who are struggling. I want you to know that we listened. We've been working day and night to find every possible way to safely allow more businesses to reopen. Under the revised framework, we'll be allowing non-essential retail businesses to reopen with stronger restrictions, including capacity limits, even in the gray lockdown zones. I'm confident with this revised framework in place with mandatory testing at our borders and a strong plan to stop the spread of these new variants, we will be able to protect our people, our frontline heroes, our communities, and our businesses. And then here's what happened at a COVID modeling briefing by Doug Ford's own science table just two days after Doug Ford said that. I confess, uh, Dr. Brown, I'm I'm a bit confused by this presentation. Uh, You say that uh, sticking with the stay-home order will help, but the stay-at-home order is is ending almost everywhere in Ontario on Tuesday. Uh, You say that RT needs to be below 0.7, and we have never actually achieved that. And we're about to, you know, if not reopen, we're going to reduce a lot of the public health measures. And those public health measures, as you say, uh, as they are lifted, cases could rise dramatically. Uh, am I missing something here, or is this presentation actually predicting a disaster? No, I, I don't think you're missing anything. Uh, the cases will likely rise given the variants of concern. Uh, the need to keep that R down is really, really critical. Uh, but there are a number of things that need to be weighed in making these decisions. Turns out John uh, Michael McGrath was right. A disaster was coming, and we are living in it now. Modeling out last week showed that we are on track, even if we vaccinate at a rate of 100,000 vaccines per day to exceed 10,000 new COVID cases per day by May, 15,000 by June. It is worth pointing out 
that uh, the modeling also showed that if there was strong compliance with a six-week stay-at-home order and continued vaccination, this could keep us below 5,000 cases per day uh, into May and June after a crest of about 7,000. But the more likely case with the current restrictions that we had was expected to exceed 10,000 cases per day. Worth highlighting that because what the Ford government actually announced in response to this modeling was the closures of no businesses at all, save for a handful of non-essential construction sites that did not include any major housing or commercial development. Closure of outdoor recreational spaces, largely thought to be low risk. And most shockingly, I think, threatening Ontarians with the police, giving police authority to randomly stop you, ask you where you're going and where you live. So I imagine that we have strong reactions to all of this. I kind of wanted to start with the big question being posed by the opposition leaders now. Should Doug Ford resign? Like this is, or I don't know, should we start with that as a question? Or is that where you want to start? I was really angry when I wrote this. So maybe, maybe. I mean, like the government has angered everybody. Nobody was happy. The conservative government of Ontario couldn't get the support of police chiefs in Ontario because their actions were too draconian, right? Like they pissed off their most ardent supporters. Their enemies obviously hated them. But scientists, even anti-maskers said this was too much. Uh, parent, everybody said this was terrible. So who's making these decisions? And is anyone going to take any responsibility for it? Because there were obviously a few people in a room somewhere on Friday afternoon who couldn't make a decision and kept pushing things every half hour, telling the media, you know, after four hours, yeah, okay, we finally came up with some bullshit. Those people shouldn't be doing this job anymore. I think they've clearly demonstrated that they have missed the mark. They are not listening to the experts. They're doing what they feel in their gut is somehow the right thing to do. Yet all of it was wrong and nobody agreed with it. I'd like to see more accountability in government. And back in the day, a politician would resign as a matter of course, if their ministry or they failed or something happened under their watch and they will take responsibility. That doesn't happen anymore. So I think in this case, what I'd actually like to see and I think you've seen in some of the opposition comments against certain ministers and government caucus members is that they're trying to get the party and conservative MPPs to take some of that responsibility and say, you guys should be the ones triggering something. Doug's never going to leave. He's not going to leave on his own accord. You think he has the like dignity and honor to say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I, it's about time that Christine Elliott come in and take my place instead. Like he's not going to say that. So it's up to the caucus and up to the party if they have a backbone at all to say you have failed our party and you failed the government, you need to be replaced with somebody else internally. I'm not sure this is about Ford, though, right? Like, listen to Christine Elliott, listen to Paul Calandra, listen to Lecce over the last few days. Like, they think they communicated this poorly, but that the substance was fine. And like, I just think they're all delusional. I think they've totally lost the thread. They're clearly panicked, but like, so say Ford resigned, who's, who becomes premier? Like, I'm just not sure it would be any better now. But don't you think, Sam, that most of this, most of these decisions were done in the premier's office and then maybe cabinet was consulted? It feels like from the leaks that we see, even the one that said stop leaking to the media was sort of these separate conversations happening between PO and cabinet. Yeah, maybe. But who would be making better calls in that government? Like, it's not a, you know, to use Ford's turn, a bunch of all-stars, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I want to talk about two things here, one of which I think is the governance of this, and one of which I think is the actual substance of what they announced. 
on the governance piece of this, I think that it is really a failure on the entire political side of government because the political side of government makes a decision. And we heard in those clips that they went with a strategy and that strategy has failed and it is now costing what will be hundreds and hundreds of lives, at least if we're lucky. What I am more worried about, as much as the political side, though, is the non-political side of government and how it has functioned through this. I mean, I started this being a total don't blame the public health authorities, you know, like keep your ire at the political side. They make the decisions. But I spent some time watching Dr. David Williams throughout all of this. Dr. Williams spoke after John Michael McGrath asked that question and his he has dissembled and basically provided medical cover for what has been a political calculation throughout the whole time. Like he has, his advice was that if we relax restrictions, and this is almost his own words, I'm paraphrasing a little, but if we relax restrictions and people act like the restrictions weren't relaxed, yeah, sure, the modeling will be, we won't be where we are right now. But like, you need to fundamentally disconnect something in your brain to think that a government policy decision to relax restrictions is not going to have an impact on human behavior. And I just think that if you are a nonpartisan political expert and you are trusted by the public to be that, and you what you actually do is you use your expertise to justify the political decisions of the government, you become political. And I actually think that Dr. Williams leaving should be a much bigger part of this conversation than it is right now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And and they could actually signal a change in approach by doing that, right? Like Ford's not going to resign, let's be real. But dismissing Williams would, I think that would actually be a strategic move. That would actually probably be to the benefit of Ontario, to your point. Yeah, I think, you know, I was thinking back to this past weekend and what kept running through my mind is what did that decision deck or briefing note look like that provided the options to government, right? Closure of playgrounds and bringing back carding. I actually cannot imagine how any public servant would have put that forward as an option, as a viable option. But even if they did, it would have been like, option Z, and you'd have like 26 options to go through beforehand. And so for me, I think, yeah, like, I, I just don't understand what the relationship between the apolitical bureaucracy and the political side looks like, right? And there's this real confusion that's playing out. And so if they're not in sync, or if there isn't this you know, fearless advice being provided by by officials, you're going to have the type of confusion that we're seeing today. And so I think that then translates to what we're seeing overall, which is a frustration that I think everybody has, is what's the end game here, right? Like, what is the story? What is the strategy? Is this is the strategy just to do what exactly? And what are the different pieces? Like, if we're actually addressing this like a war and not to trivialize the idea of a war but if if it's something that significant then you've got strategies in place and you've got the right people leading you've got you've communicated to your public why you're asking them to do what you're doing because it's by these points that we expect progress to be made and i i do not recall in recent months 
at the very least what the end game is here. And it's just a lot of politicking back and forth between different orders of government. And it's exhausting, if not absolutely frustrating. Well, the deputy chief officer of health, right? Like she was caught on her hot mic uh, a couple of weeks ago, basically saying, I don't know what's on this. I just say whatever they tell me to say, right? Like these guys aren't independent officers of the legislature. They're part of the ministry of health, right? Like, so it'd be like questioning a deputy minister who is there to implement the program of the government that they recommended on some level and would have to defend on another level if questioned. So I, I don't think, I think we assume that they have that sort of level of independence and that they're put on that pedestal, but it doesn't really exist in that sense. I think for a civil servant, though, there's a respect that needs to come from the political side to the independence of the civil service. Like, yes, the civil service is there to implement and to advise the government, implement the government's directives. And that is right. And it is proper. If the government is ignoring best advice, which I think there's strong evidence that it is, you know, like, I think you only come to closure and closing playgrounds and if you like have as a big thing, I don't want to close any businesses. I don't want to do paid sick days, but we need to do something big. Like there's not much, if you're not going to do paid sick days, like there's only, there's a very small list of things that are left to do after that. Well, and Christine Elliott basically admitted that today, which is that Williams' advice was to reduce mobility, but that they never suggested playgrounds. And from reading the tea leaves, it sort of sounds like Doug Ford drove by a busy playground and maybe suggested playgrounds himself. Like, let's be real about what we think happened here. Yeah. But if you are then being used, as this government has done many times, saying we are following the best advice of David Williams, we are doing this, like I would as David Williams, that is a point where I think it's incumbent on a civil servant to step down or to leave or to do something because it is important for the public, even though this is not something the public thinks about, to have a civil service that is not acting in a political interest. I, I do want to bring this back to the incompetency of Doug Ford, though. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, sorry. The I'm... fact that the decision was made because he drove on Friday morning past a busy neighborhood and a busy park, and that became government policy within hours, is fucking absurd, yeah. right? And then he was like, oh, I mean, I know lots of cops, and they like carting, and carting is great, and we should have carting back so that we can pull everybody over for whatever fucking reason we want to. Like, it, that's insane. And there's nobody within the existing system in his circle who was able to stand up and say, absolutely not. That is a terrible idea. You cannot do this. Right. And the, ga- the continued gaslighting on paid sick leave and the trying to throw it back to the federal government is like, I, I can barely take it anymore. Like, it's in crazy. Results. Yeah. I totally agree. And I want to talk a little bit about that sort of specifically and the messaging and the framing here, because we heard it in those quotes, like, we are reopening, we are losing the war between vaccines. And like, what they keep on coming back to is the vaccine supply, despite the fact that Canada is vaccinating at a faster rate than most of the countries of the world. Not that we don't have supply issues, but I think everyone is doing the best they can there. We exceeded what people were expecting, even by the government, federal government's own standards. Yeah. Well, how much I think of the rage started with, at this press conference that we heard with Doug Ford saying, I've made the tough decisions. I've done this. Every sentence starting with an I. And then saying, we've been warning you for weeks. For me, that's where the first bit of rage hit me because I was like, no, you haven't been. And way to victim blame you know, the public for his own inaction for the entire 
process of the pandemic and putting it all on the fact that vaccines are the only solution? Since when was that true? What happened to contact tracing? What happened to all the other things that you can do to keep people separate, right? So again, we're seeing today, just like we saw a few weeks ago, the Peel Officer of Health coming out ahead of everybody else and saying, any workplace that has over five active cases is going to be shut down until the vaccination rates can go up and you can lower the transmission. The Toronto is now doing that as well. This is exactly what happened for school boards. uh, And you're starting with Peel and Toronto. And I think it's going to extend to other places too, for these other medical officers of health finally stepping up and taking action because they don't report to Doug. And they can do what they need to do to keep their region safe. I don't know why that hasn't been happening since March 2020, but whatever. The other thing is like the it's the gaslighting. They clearly think that their problem is strategic communications right now. They've swapped out their executive director of strategic communications. They've changed their messaging now a few times, put out that we're banning non-residential or we're closing down non-essential construction. And then you read the regs and essential construction is defined as every fucking form of construction, including industrial, residential, government, etc. It's like, what are we doing here? I think the thing that people need to understand is the lack of paid sick days in the infrastructure is one of the reasons it has taken, I think, municipal officers long because like, they're going to close those businesses and those workers aren't going to get paid. Like mm-hmm. if they close an Amazon warehouse, nobody working for Amazon is going to pay them. Um, because the province hasn't come forward with paid sick days. They don't have COVID, so they don't follow the provincial. They don't fall under the federal program. Those workers are just going to go without. But because the province is both unwilling to touch workplaces, which we know are driving infections, we got to do it. And because they're unwilling to pay people, those workers are just going to go. So like, this is going to have a real... I can't imagine what that was like for the Peel Officer of Health to make this decision because... like. There are health, there are health negatives. There are bad things that are going to happen to people who are shut out of work and shut Mm -hmm. out of income. Totally. Just in the last, while we were recording like 10 minutes ago, apparently Christine Elliott was quoted as saying, we are considering alternatives now to fill in the gaps of the federal paid sick leave. So it sounds like a cave is forthcoming, which is fascinating. The spin on that is going to be incredible. (laughs) That would be great. And like, I mean, is it, far too late. Yes. Did, did, you know, thousands of people have to get sick and die? Or we often look at these things between like, you either get sick or you don't. And if you get sick, you might die. But there's also like long-term disability issues that come with, with a critical illness like COVID. And so the people that have been affected, let's not forget the human implications of all of this, continue to be low income, racialized people that are working so that we can stay at home and we and it's so easy to lose that thread when you're thinking of the politics of it all and it really does feel like that these people become disposable that communities of color that low-income communities that people with disabilities anybody that doesn't fit within the that isn't i don't know the typical person that would probably vote for the conservative party is seen as disposable. And if whether that's intention or not, I'm not saying that's clearly their intention, but their policy decisions have that effect. And that is important to underscore. Yeah, I want to tell actually you guys a story because I, I moved this weekend. And in the process of doing that, I had to rent a storage locker and I had to rent a car two fairly easy things. And it, I happened to do, be doing those things on the day that these measures were announced. and. In both of those places, there were people 
who were working in public-facing offices, who were working in close quarters in these areas, not well ventilated. You know, often the mask compliance was not super great in both of the places that I went in. People either with old masks or, you know, masks kind of hang around your chin kind of thing. And I was thinking, man, I am moving so that I can move to a slightly safer place. And I'm already working from home. There is nothing that the Ford government announced today that will keep these people safe. And so I, I actually felt personally horrible because here's a policy that is actively allowing me to keep buying and selling and do uh, doing my life at the cost of other people. And I, I just, what you said hit home for me, Grima, because I experienced it literally on Friday. Maybe to wrap it up and bring it back to yeah. the politics, I do think that the vast majority, we've seen the polling. The vast majority of people support paid sick days for everyone, right? And bringing it back to where it was. The vast majority of people support closing down businesses to prevent spread. Yet it seems like they're serving this imaginary electorate of people who wouldn't be supporting these causes. Like I think doing the right thing is also the right thing politically for the Ford government. I think you'd get liberals and everybody else saying, good job, Doug way to do the right thing and do the paid sick day thing and and close the businesses. I don't think he'd be taking a hit on that, yet he seems to be unwilling to do those things for political reasons. Yeah. Before we leave, can we talk about politics for a second? Just because I think it's been a fascinating week. Both opposition leaders, I believe, have now called on the premier to resign. That is a new position for the liberals at the very least. And, you know, my feeling personally is like sort of what Sam said two weeks ago, get me a new poll, put it in my veins. Because I think the one we saw the day of the announcement that was before that horrible press conference was the conservatives polling equally with the liberals for the first time. And that's an interesting shift from where they've been. Well, there's now been three, right? I think there was Innovative, Ecos, and Abacus are all now out basically showing the same, which is the NDP way back and the liberals and conservatives closely together around 34, 35, which if I'm the liberals, I'm feeling great about that because that doesn't even really yet bake in the full anger. And the conservatives really never dip far below 30 in Ontario. And so they're not going to win a majority if the polling stays like that. And it's on the opposition, obviously, to to build momentum from here and remind people this is the same government that you all hated and had a 19% approval rating a year or two ago, and they don't know how to govern and you need an alternative. So I think both Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath are doing that in different ways right now. Could they be both be better in their own ways? Yes. You know, to your point, Sam, I think if I was a conservative strategist, if I was the party president of the progressive conservative party, I would be looking at these numbers and saying, that's terrible. But also I expect them to bounce back. Like vaccinations will happen, right? Things will get closer to normal before the next election. But is Doug the best person to get me over that threshold and to get in a majority government? I don't think so. I think people can attach the blame of the failures of this government to the person, because I think he is personally responsible for most of it. And if you saw that, then you should take this opportunity to replace your leader and then write out the good things that are going to be happening over the next several months and implement the things that I just said were politically palpable for everybody and get the credit of you know taking politics out of the pandemic. And then they would cruise to a majority government. I think we'd have a tough time beating them in the next election if they did that. Yeah. The NDP in this is is an interesting piece because you can see the protest 
vote coming back the middle the mushy middle between the liberals and the conservatives being like we are not happy right now and coming back to the liberals the ndp being so far back is also a drop for them and i think it's interesting because they are the official opposition it's interesting to see them not capitalize on this that makes me think alvin that you are correct that this is more malleable because if you know those voters that have come over to the liberals either from the conservatives or the ndp i think in a different feeling world, maybe go back to their camps if things feel a little bit different. Cool. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling great. After. <laughs> was that cathartic? Uh, was that cathartic? It was very cathartic. Just for anyone listening, this is very frustrating. I hope in some way that was helpful as opposed to just more misery. If you've been scrubbing just to get to the budget, you're here because we're going to talk uh, about some good news now because there's the federal budget certainly had a lot of super interesting stuff in it. So we're not going to summarize all of the new spending because $100 billion in new is a lot to get through. But just some of the big ticket items that got the most attention included childcare, which was an announcement that it wants to get to a 50% reduction in childcare fees by next year, moving to a system where it costs parents no more than $10 a day within five. They earmarked $30 billion. It was a big plan. We've talked a lot about childcare on this pod. Is it enough? And how are, we, how are they going to do this with what we know is a sticky federation? I've I've been talking about childcare ever since I started having kids 10 years ago. And oh my God, I'm so glad that it's in the budget and that it's a huge part of it and that it really headlined it. And I love the ambition of it. I love the amount of money that they threw at it. I'm still nervous and anxious about it actually happening because I've seen this show before several times to the point where, you know, if you recall back in 2005, you had Ken Dryden go out and actually negotiate, you know, deal individual deals with every province and then for it to be almost immediately defeated in the next budget and triggered an election and we lost it to, you know, as recently as uh, the last uh, provincial election where I ran in, we talked about expanding childcare significantly, starting at two and a half for everyone in Ontario and that being defeated so resoundingly. I hope that you know, the quote that the conservatives are using right now, where Minister Freeland is saying this is a political opportunity. The rest of the quote is a political opportunity for people to finally see the benefits and uh, realities of people who need childcare. That's my hope. And that this ambition and this money is enough to to get through it. And that we're not going to run into provincial premiers who say, well, screw you, this is a federal program, and I don't care. And I'm not going to go along with it. I mean, a, a for effort, A for the amount of money that they put into it, um, still full of skepticism and, and doubt as to how much this can actually happen. But again, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'd say, you know, first thing I'd say, add women, change politics is definitely true. Uh, if we didn't have Minister Freeland at the helm as Minister of Finance, I'm not sure that the idea of a she session and the necessity of a she covery would necessarily would demand such a response on at least the childcare end. And the idea that this is a feminist budget in of itself, you know, I think that the political end has a lot to do with it. The galvanizing of support from civil society and sort of the rallying cry from civil society is really important. And I wonder if what's different now that gives me more hope than the past on childcare is that our economic situation demands it. We've seen 
women drop out of the labor market at higher rates compared to men as a result of the pandemic, many of whom have childcare responsibilities. And as Alvin will tell you, being able to like work and balance being a parent, being a teacher and being a worker and being a human being at the same time are all very challenging things to do. And so I think people hopefully intuitively understand how important childcare is and that because people over the past year have been thinking about what does a reimagined social architecture in Canada look like that they're more willing to 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 be invested in it and to demand it the only thing that's in its way now is the provincial the FPT politics of it. And I think that this is where people have to get a little bit savvy. And it's not only pushing the federal government, but it's also pushing your provincial leaders. Sam, I I want to turn to you for some thoughts on this. A, as when we were in the minister's office, we put together, I say we, not intending to include myself since I was very not involved in the policy of this, but you certainly were, where putting together the last win government attempt at this. And I think when I look at this, the thing that is different for me about this time is the Martin government, the Wynn government were, I think, sailing into really difficult elections and wanted to use this as a chip. I think, not to say that the liberals have the next election in the bag by any mad stretch, but I do, if I were a betting person, I'd feel much more comfortable placing a re-election bet on this one than the previous two, because I, I have that anxiety too. It's like, the liberal governments need to stop putting childcare in the window as the thing that gets done if they're elected and actually do it. So I'm with Alvin. I think the ambition level and certainly the financing associated with the ambition is unprecedented. All the various iterations from Martin and before that have been mentioned are like nearly like an order of magnitude smaller. And so I think just to just put it into perspective, the Wynn government promised free childcare for preschool and up, so like two and a half and up, and budgeted about a billion dollars to on, on an ongoing annual basis to fund it. At $8 billion across the country, Ontario's share would be about three, right? So it's three times more ambitious and would be enough probably to give everyone about $20 a day childcare, even if the province spent nothing more. Like, this will go a really long way. Obviously, if the province kicks in more, and I'm sure that both the Liberals and NDP will will be doing some of that, then then it can go even further. But so, you know, will it happen? It's a five-year plan. There's There will be an election in between. The provinces will have to agree. And clearly already the Ford government was signaling yesterday that they want to pick a fight over this. And we're signaling they want choice and they want to spend more on tax credits. And if I'm the Liberals, like, I would lean into that because they're fundamentally talking to different people, right? Do you want a tax credit or do you want $10 a day space for your kids? Because you can't have both. And I think it will set up a real kind of values-based fight, which is great. But I, yeah, so I would just echo what's been said. This is the one in a long line, but it's the first that feels quite real and tangible, which is exciting. And and I want to add, because some people were talking about some of the failings of this budget in terms of it didn't mention universal farmer care, uh, which was hinted at before. It didn't mention uh, universal basic income, which was hinted at before. But neither of those things had the budget commitments in them that this has, right? So this is, to your point, Sam, the best version of this that we've seen in a long time. And for this government, actually putting money behind 
that project, which they didn't on those other pieces, which is not a pass of those things. I would still want them to do those other things. And I'm surprised that Universal Pharmacare didn't have substantial money behind it in this budget either. But yeah, it does seem more promising on the childcare front if they can get the provincial partners on board. I want to talk, move us to the politics a little bit. The current government, just to remind us all, only needs uh, support of one of the other opposition parties in order to pass a budget. So Aaron O'Toole already said he's not going to support the budget. Not surprised there. The BQ is bringing an amendment to support, add more support for seniors. Says he, there's not enough for him to support the budget as is. Sounding like he might not support, but we don't really know what he's doing. But Jagmeet Singh, and Anami Paul have both said that their parties will not bring down the government in this budget, while pointing out that while they disagree about some of the things, they agree with a lot of other things. So this budget does not seem to be what's going to kick us into an election. I'm curious, though, because we all know that this is set up to an election. So how do we read the moves of all of the parties in the federal uh, government? And how do we what do we think the, the government is hoping for out of this particular strategy? I think they would be very happy if this triggers an election. But I sort of doubt it that will be the case that the NDP like they like to play cute and, and abstain and not vote for things. But I think in this case, they might actually vote for it. I know Leader Singh said that they will absolutely not be triggering an election through this budget vote. And so I think his biggest concerns around revenue tools, not including a wealth tax, not doing enough for the social assistance network, those are all valid concerns from this budget. But his argument around you know COVID and putting people through that, the experience that we had in Newfoundland recently is more than enough to justify with all the goodies that are also announced in this for the NDP to actually vote and support this. So the question then becomes, how does the next election get triggered? Does the federal, do the federal liberals do it themselves? Do they pass this and then go to the chief justice and say, we want a new mandate? And then just do it? Or do they wait to the fall and have a fall economic statement that collapses somehow? Or have a new session that starts? Like, I, I don't see this government lasting past 2021. So what is going to trigger the election? I think they're also looking to BC where, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, John Horgan triggered an election for basically, I would like a majority now, please. And... <laughs> I feel like he got what? lucky though, right, Chris? Like, I mean, the liberals in um, Newfoundland and Labrador tried the same thing and then they ran into a wave and had to delay the election several weeks uh, yeah. to the point where people were like, this isn't legitimate. Like people voted, you know, a month ago. <laughs> people lost their ballots. A whole bunch of shit happened in between. I don't know. I think it's a gamble. And the politics for just to bring it to Ontario are really interesting, right? Because like, I think the PCs would, probably prefer that the Trudeau government stay in power, the Ontario PCs, because people like the contrast, right? That goes back a long way in Ontario history. And so when it gets triggered versus the June 2022 date for Ontario, it's like maybe they hold on all the way through. It's possible. Okay, well, maybe to wrap us up today, I saw a tweet over the weekend that Ford is considering a cabinet shuffle, which just sounds like exactly what we we need right now just shuffling the decks <laughs> shuffling the decks yeah exactly the titanic yeah is this now the most cabinet shuffles 
Like, is this a, like they've had a lot of cabinet shuffles? I mean, he's had three finance ministers in three years, fewer than three years. So, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know if it's the most. There's been a lot of shuffles yeah. a lot of times. One of our listeners has got to be the kind of political geek that knows this. Please tweet us. But yeah, I uh, we've heard speculation about Stephen Lecce, Marilee Fulgen, Rod Phillips coming back, Ross Romano, and King Asurma all getting moved around. If the Ford government pulls, and they have been signaling some contrition on their communications and their approach. So like, if we think they're going to move things, who do we think they're going to move? Oh my God. Could you imagine Stephen Lecce gets promoted to like the minister of covid like the czar the czar of covid and because he's the best communicator right in the opinion of this government steven knows how to communicate although Is that true I, anymore though i don't uh, but i think they're mad at him right like because they've kind of tried to embarrass him now a couple times on the school rollout so i think maybe his ambition has gotten the best but i do wonder if they move him like long-term care because they got to move merrily or like you know government house leader where you have profile but it's kind of inconsequential profile like i i doubt he would be truly promoted so like merrily and ross have to get kicked out from competence right like <laughs> you would think just for being terrible ministers and not knowing how to do their job they need to move somewhere else so i mean whether or not Stephen lecce has been a good communicator or not in this government's opinion he definitely has a following and has some talent in that area so yeah. i could definitely see that happening and rod phillips is one of their you know, former CEO, whatever type of people, Bay Street person who could, in theory, be able to handle, like, I don't know how, what the criticisms were while he was actually running the ministry were. I feel like Grima has something to add here. <laughs> I mean, I'll just say that for me, if Rod Phillips comes back, and I live in Pickering now, I grew up in Ajax, so I feel like I've got the right to be able to say this. I will be so pissed. Mostly because in the middle of a pandemic, when like everybody is going through absolute hell, a person in government decides to go to Switzerland, then go to St. Bart's, gets a timeout for three months, essentially, and then is brought back into cabinet, would just not, I just don't understand how that would signal anything positive for this government. Like, I'm not, again, I'm not a partisan person. And so it always strikes me when I say something that sounds so overtly par par partisan. But I just, I don't think people would take it well. Like I'm, I just, I don't think that would land well. And I don't know how that bodes for like conservative ideas and what, you know, what's right and what's wrong, what's fair and what's not. And so that just, it doesn't make sense to me. Sorry, yeah. ramp over. It clearly points out to me all of this cabinet shuffle. Like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope Stephen Lecce goes. I think he's been a terrible minister of education. But it does underline for me if, like, the fact that this is the kind of move they're thinking, how much they're flailing in the same way that, like, they move their press conference back three times. They're considering bringing right. Like, this is not a government that has a long term plan. Like, I truly think going back to those clips we played at the beginning, they thought that their green red blue color scheme thing was gonna work and they had no plan for it not working and now they're like trying to be like oh god we just need someone competent so let's bring back rod without thinking of exactly that kind of thing grima like they are not like this is where governments can get into real trouble because they're in reaction mode they don't have a plan and yeah like shuffling the deck chairs is not uh not gonna not gonna fix things because like the other thing i know about cabinet shuffles 
is they take time. A new minister of education or a new minister of, you know, any of these things, like the weeks of prep goes into bringing them to a place where they can make decisions. So like, it's uh, like, this just struck me as bad news for Ontario. But like, I'm literally just staring at the cabinet list right now on the Ontario website. And like, I can't pick a single one of them that I would want to become <laughs> either the Minister of Health or the Minister of Education. Like, this is not who should be governing Ontario in this crisis. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at, at OntarioLoud or go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto, uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and it continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.